This is an ABC podcast. Many Americans live on the outskirts of hope, some because of their poverty and some because of their colour, and all too many because of both. It's the mid-60s, and Lyndon Johnson is committing his government to a sweeping social reform package known as the Great Society. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. This is Future Tense. Our task is to help replace their despair with opportunity. And this For many Americans, it was a turning point, a move toward a more progressive future. But it also involved trying to create a massive digital database. And according to one of our guests today, Margaret O'Mara, that helped usher in the complications and frustrations we now have with online privacy. You know, we have to think about the political context. The Vietnam War is escalating and Americans have started to question governmental decisions in the way that they hadn't in the decade before. There's uh, all sorts of concern that electronic devices, small and large, might be used to encroach on people's privacy. And here comes a bunch of government bureaucrats who have this brilliant idea to take all of these various databases and create one mega database. And without really good answers for how privacy would be protected in the administration of that database. Historian Margaret O'Mara, coming up a little later. And we'll also hear from The Atlantic magazine's Alexis Madrigal. If you want to send me a tweet, my name on Twitter is at Anthony J Fennell. Many of you will have received an email from Google over the past few weeks about the imminent closure of their Google Plus social media platform. After seven years, the network is due to cease operation in April. After a software glitch exposed the private information of hundreds of thousands of Google Plus users between 2015 and March 2018, Google is shutting down its Google Plus social network. But funnily enough, Business Insider reports many people don't even know that they have a Google Plus account. Detect to see if you have one and then shut it down. And therein possibly lies a part of the problem. Technology companies like to tell us about their successes, but they're not so forthcoming about their mistakes. Dr David Glantz is the director of the Centre for Software Practice at the University of Western Australia. I think that Google was always going to have a challenge in creating a social network. They had tried previously. One of the social networks had closed before they started Google+, one called Orkut, which was popular in South America of all places. But it's not in Google's DNA, and they had really struggled to get away from anything that was not related to search and their core business. And what was it about Google Plus that, that really didn't catch on with social media users when it was launched? I think first and foremost, it was a very clunky interface. It was very technical, the way that you had to classify all of your associates and friends into these circles. And people found that difficult to do, even though you can do the similar sort of thing with Twitter and Facebook. Uh, A lot of people don't bother and it really just splits everybody into close friends and family and the rest of the world. Google Plus took a very technical perspective and I think there was uh, this idea that Google's engineers were building something that they themselves would use and so it would appeal to people who were in the tech business, male and young. 
but nobody else. We're used to thinking of Google as one of the dominating players in the technology world, in the media world. Should we be surprised that they made a mistake with Google Plus? Not at all, no. They've got a long history of launching products that lasted for a while and most of which just fizzled out without anybody really noticing the the coming or passing of them. Some were more spectacular, Google Plus being one of those, but Google Glass is a good example where they just hadn't anticipated all of the social problems that having these cameras in glasses would cause and really responded to an outcry to actually take that off the market and really focus it more on the business community world. But there are numerous other examples like Picasso, which was one of their photo editing and sharing apps, the early speakers that they developed called the Nexus Q, other social network type communication platforms, even Google Hangouts is the second or third iteration of that. Allo is another example. Google have tried lots of different things, and in a lot of cases, they've done what a lot of other Silicon Valley companies have been guilty of, which is to essentially view the world and their users as just being exactly the same as people living in San Francisco and Silicon Valley. And of course, they're not. So they seem quite surprised that the rest of the world operates and lives differently. As Google Plus is being wound down, uh, the company has said that it will work with account holders to help them to take control of their data. But is this another example of the fact that the ultimate fate of people's data on social media platforms really really relies on the benevolence, if you like, of the, the, the companies themselves? Well, I think there is now legislation, especially out of Europe with the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, that is forcing companies like Google and Facebook and Apple to be able to provide data to users on request. And we've all benefited from that by them adding this for these features and then making it available to the rest of the world, possibly in, in anticipation of regulation coming into other countries. So you can download all of your data from Facebook. I've done it, for example, prior to disabling my account on that platform. Now, what you would actually do with it is questionable other than being surprised at the quantity I think with Google, what people didn't realize, and especially with Google Plus, as it became a connector between all of the services, is just how pervasive it is in terms of tracking your every move. And it's not just on the in the digital world, but in the physical world as well. And so even though it can provide this information, I'm not entirely sure what anybody would do with their Google Plus posts. If people were using it as a blogging site, they might be interested in it from that perspective. But really, it's just mainly being concerned about verifying what these platforms, what information they actually have from you. And that's really one of the main reasons for downloading them. And is the demise of Google Plus, is it instructive uh, in our understanding of social media platforms in general and, and where they've been heading? where they are heading? Well, I think even with things like MySpace, when that really essentially died, I know it's still going in some form, but we've realized that these social media platforms are not too big to fail. And even though Facebook today looks secure, it's not going to be the same in five years' time. And people are already finding different mechanisms of communicating with each other. And I think that countries especially have realized the deep social problems that these platforms can bring. And it's not just 
authoritarian governments that are looking at how to regulate the platforms. We've seen in the US with the interference in elections and fake news, which is now a pervasive and continuing problem. But even in countries like France, where all of the recent protests by the Yellow Vest movement is largely a product of Facebook and the communities that form on there fueled by fake news, fake accounts, and you know, open to manipulation. Digital platforms, of course, were the, the great hope for advertisers just a couple of years ago. Uh, has their interest in the digital world changed given the events of the last couple of years? No, in fact, if anything, they've become even more desperately trying to make use of it. I think as conditions and competition heats up, people really turn to advertising almost out of a sense of desperation. And this has been an issue that I've had with companies like Facebook and Google who sell to a large number of people this idea that you can advertise on their platforms, that it's personalized and somehow it will be more effective than sticking an ad on a billboard or in the the local press. But I don't think there's very much evidence for this. And this is one of the disappointing things of the recent ACCC's review into digital platforms that they looked at the whole power that Google and Facebook had in the advertising and especially digital advertising world, but didn't question the fact that companies that were paying these platforms to advertise were actually potentially getting ripped off because these ads weren't necessarily working. And I don't think most companies would be in a position to know that they weren't working. David Glantz from the University of Western Australia, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. The end of privacy began in the 1960s. That was the headline on an article recently in the New York Times. Its author, Dr. Margaret O'Mara a professor of history at the University of Washington. The 1960s was the decade when computer data processing, that's mainframe computers, really giant, almost room-sized machines, or at least refrigerator-sized, they were able to process incredible amounts of data, much more information than ever could have been processed before. And they were being adopted by the hundreds in American corporations and in governments, and not only in the United States, of course, all around the world. When it came on the governmental side, governmental records were being digitized. They were going from paper to centralized and digital databases. So it's in the fall of 1965 when advisors to President Johnson, and of course this is Lyndon Johnson, is in the process of building what was called the Great Society, an ambitious agenda of domestic programs, anti-poverty programs, social programs, and, and healthcare programs. And all these new programs, Johnson's advisors suggest, need to be you know, have their own databases and shouldn't we centralize them all in one place so this information can talk to one another? It was really, it made sense from an efficiency perspective, of course, and a lot of the people suggesting it were social scientists who thought, well, this is going to be extremely useful for being able to design better programs to address economic inequality and policy. But it set off alarm bells, didn't it, for people who were concerned about privacy and particularly concerned about the way the government might be able to use data? 
Absolutely. You know, we have to think about the political context. It's the middle of the 1960s. The Vietnam War is escalating. The anti-war movement is starting to, to germinate on college campuses. And Americans have started to question governmental decisions in the way that they hadn't in the decade before. Government has grown enormously. There have been incidents of federal law enforcement. The FBI, which then is being run by J. Edgar Hoover, is uh, spying on and, and surveying activists on both the right and the left. There's uh, all sorts of concern that electronic devices, small and large, might be used to encroach on people's privacy. And here comes a bunch of government bureaucrats who have this brilliant idea to take all of these various databases and create one mega database. And without really good answers for how privacy would be protected in the administration of that database, they hadn't really figured out how that was going to work. Now, you argue, don't you, that the response to that National Data Bank initiative, that response actually shaped the way Americans and indeed we in the Western world think about data today and think about the way it should be regulated. Explain how that happened. Well, the focus around this initiative of the Johnson administration was how government computers were encroaching on privacy. The focus of congressional investigations into computer privacy are focused almost exclusively onto public sector actors, what the government is doing. Whereas electronic companies are never called to testify in front of Congress. Now, part of this is the nature of the tech business itself. What was high tech? What was the tech business in the 1960s? It was microchip makers, uh, semiconductor makers. Many of these companies were defense contractors. They were building things for the military. They weren't consumer companies. They weren't building platforms that ordinary people could access. No had home computers, you know, computer users were, there was no such thing as a personal computer in the 1960s. So really, private industry was left off the hook. There was not much conversation about regulating private industry and regulating electronic data outside of government. And then what comes on the heels of the Vietnam era? Well, there's Watergate, the Watergate scandal, the resignation of Richard Nixon, in which the government falls further out of favor and distrust of America's leaders and what they might be up to is at an all-time high. So meanwhile, the tech industry evolves from being Silicon Valley, goes from being a valley that made silicon chips, that's why it was called Silicon Valley, to one that made personal computers and then software and then the great platforms of today. Yet the regulatory infrastructure never evolved to regulate not only how data was used, but whether either public or private entities could collect it in the first place. That was never part of the conversation. Which seems extraordinary in one sense, doesn't it? That, you know, that the question wasn't asked whether this data should actually be gathered. Yes. And that's really remarkable. One of the things that I found so interesting in my research into these congressional hearings was that even though there were all these proposals being put forth, I mean, nearly 100 pieces of legislation that had something to do with privacy were put forth in the U.S. Congress in the later years of the 60s and early 70s. Very few of them passed, but it shows how much this was on the mind of Congress at the time. Both parties, by the way, both Republicans and Democrats were, were putting forth rules to regulate privacy in some way. 
But they all had to do with kind of controlling data that the government already had, rather than saying, well, what if we just didn't ask the question in the first place? What if this information never really entered a data bank in the very first place? This is still the question that faces the the tech industry that's American-based but global in influence. Today, you know, we're talking about, well, what should these large companies be able to do with your information? Can they sell it to third parties? Well, shouldn't we ask, well, should they have that in the first place? So if that question had been asked back in the mid-60s, as Silicon Valley was starting to rise, not only our technology industry, but our relationship to technology today would be very different, wouldn't it? It could be very different. But here's the interesting thing. You know, we can say, ah, oh, you know, if, if only, you know, everything would have been different and perhaps better. But look what this lack of regulation also resulted in and the, the kind of letting private industry do what it wished was it allowed these platforms to really be created in the first place. It kind of made the ad-based internet possible. You know, the reason we have the, the the internet we have today, at least in the second decade of the 21st century, is because of the ad-based model. And how was the American attitude towards privacy, towards data collection, how was that different back at that time to that, say, which uh, existed in Europe at the time? Well, that's a really interesting and important contrast. And I think that what we're also, you know, the end of privacy might have began in the 1960s, but really it was made possible by a sort of far deeper, longer history and the way that American constitutional law has been interpreted and the way that the right to privacy is understood in the American context. My shorthand for it is that, well, in Europe, privacy is the default setting that people then opt out of their information kept private. In the United States, the default is for things not to be private, to be transparent. And this has to do in part with American democracy itself, the sort of democratic impulse that, you know, the free flow of information, free speech is part of a sort of a fundamental constitutional right. And where there have been rulings, Supreme Court rulings on privacy, they've had to do with technologies of an earlier era, or they've had to do with other dimensions of personal privacy that aren't necessarily applicable or easily transferable to the digital age. Now, this is something that is deeply rooted in American political culture and and needs to be understood as we look to the future to figure out what's the path forward. So it's important to understand that the decisions we make today are are very important in terms of what uh, relationship we have with technology in future generations. The decisions that are made today, the decisions that are made in 2019, 2020 in the United States and globally are going to have cast a long shadow, just like the decisions made and not made in the 60s and 70s are casting a long shadow. And it isn't about one company or a cluster of companies. Yes, there are companies that are extremely powerful now and there needs to be a conversation about them. But, you know, the technology world moves pretty fast. <laughs> the next generation technology may be quite different. The companies, the players may be quite different. So there's a fine line to be walked, but we don't not only have to respond to right now, we need to remember that this will have a long afterlife. Professor Margaret O'Mara from the University of Washington, thank you very much. My pleasure. And Professor O'Mara has a book on the subject coming out soonish, later this year. It's to be called The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. Regardless of where you are in the world or how you're listening, this is Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. It's clear now that we didn't do enough to prevent these tools from being used for harm as well. 
We didn't take a broad enough view of our responsibility, and that was a big mistake. And it was my mistake, and I'm sorry. I started Facebook, I run it, and I'm responsible for what happens here. Barely a month goes by these days without one of the titans of the digital world having to make a correction, an apology, a mere culpa. Once were warriors, gods even, but now the mystique has well and truly collapsed, says technology analyst Alexis Madrigal. Alexis is a staff writer for The Atlantic. The fall from grace currently being experienced by today's internet barons has a precedent, he says. And there's a very simple reason why they rose to power so quickly and with such public adulation. I think the easiest explanation for that is that in a capitalist society, he who makes the most money is seen as right. The market, at least since the 1980s in the United States, has been seen as kind of almost a democratic mechanism, more democratic than democracy. Everyone votes with their money. They vote with their purchases. They vote with their consumerdom. And because of that, if people use your service, even if they don't pay for it, but if they use your service, that's success. I think secondarily, you know, the rest of the world is jealous of the fact that these companies that come out of this tiny slice of the Pacific coast of the United States have managed to take over the internet. And I think there's kind of two responses to that. One is a kind of worship of those people and just an amazement, a wonder at that kind of accomplishment. And, you know, the other, which is trying to throw off those chains and anger and resentment is what we've seen more recently. Do you think that uh, people like uh, Zuckerberg, like Elon Musk, like Jeff Bezos, do you think that they believe the rhetoric, that they genuinely believe that they have a role as giants for social good, not just for commerce? I think they believe that the best thing to do with your life is to change the world, make a dent in the world. You know, I think they believe that. And I think that they, by and large, believe that on a net basis, they may have caused some problems, they may have done some bad things, but net, their effect on the world has been good. And it has been good at scale in a massive way. And I think one of the the crisis of conscience in Silicon Valley is the idea that you have been having an effect at scale. That's the whole point. Tons of people are affected by your actions. You thought those things, those actions had a positive valence, which when you multiplied them by 2 billion was a really big positive number. But what if it's a small negative or even a large negative? Now multiply that by 2 billion and the quest of your life, the meaning of your life has gone from having a positive effect on the world that was really big to a negative effect on the world that's also really big. And I think that that is a very hard thing to accept if you're the CEO of one of these companies or even a rank and file employee. You've written about the collapse, if you like, of that mythology around the tech giants. A lack of trust, is that the main reason for the collapse in our esteem for them? I, you know, I'm not sure. I think that's a common explanation that these companies finally did X, Y, and Z enough times that everyday consumers said, okay, we're, we're, we're done with these. We don't trust these companies anymore. But if you look at the numbers, people never really trusted Facebook in particular, and yet they used it anyway. I think that part of what's happened is that people's interactions online, there's kind of a one-time bonus when you reconnect with people or you create a new network on Twitter or, or something else. There's all this new social energy flowing through your life. 
But as time goes on, it's it's almost like that generates a kind of pollution. You know, you get into little petty squabbles. People yell at you when you're not expecting it. You get fired from your job for saying something stupid or, or downright racist and maybe you should get fired, but it just happens sometimes. And people through time come to recognize that there are major downsides to these platforms as well. And I think that's really what's happened is it's a larger reevaluation of the role that we've given these companies and these technologies in our lives. And that that larger reevaluation then, of course, comes the, the avatars of that change are these big companies. We like to think sometimes that we live in unprecedented technological times, but you draw a, a historical analogy, don't you, with the fall from grace of another form of technology back in the 19th century? Absolutely. I mean, Americans, when railroads were being knocked across the country, they loved it. The railroads were the sign of modernity in the way that the internet was the sign of, of our times. So uh, Stanford historian Richard White, who is a historian of the West, you know, called them the epitome of modernity. And the way that people talked about them, or as he put it, the kind of hyperbole recently lavished on the internet was once the mark of railroad talk. And so, you know, you had this technology that was transforming lives, that was language of the time, obliterating space and time. You know, for the first time, you could move your body faster than a horse across the land. You know, that was an incredibly impressive thing that changed everything about the way that people lived. But it came with cost, too. And the railway barons, like our, our current technology barons, they were esteemed, weren't they, by the, the general public for a while? Absolutely. I mean, again, you know, these had become some of the richest and therefore most powerful people in the world. And, you know, their names began to adorn institutions, um, you know, Stanford, for example, Leland Stanford, a uh, railroad baron. And now we have, you know, Zuckerberg General Hospital um, in, in San Francisco. The process of myth making and of great man making that occurred around the, the railroad barons, very, very, very similar to what we've seen around tech companies. What does the history of that particular fall from grace with the railroad monopolies, what does that tell us about the future for digital technologies? Well, as time went on, the sorts of things that, in particular, the transcontinental railroad creators had done really started to sour the public. And in part, it's because they created a monopoly on the networks of distribution that existed throughout the country. And so people were both dependent on these networks, but also subject to their whims, subject to their pricing changes. And people started to look at how they had actually made money and one of the favorite mechanisms is that they were going to lose money building the railroad. And so they got a contract and money from the U.S. government that allowed them to essentially create subsidiaries, which they used to make money building the railroads. They were able to sort of do financial engineering that sort of hid their losses from creditors. There are all kinds of you know, shady practices that once people started to look closer, they said, wait, why are we venerating these people? But that was only in the context of people's kind of lived experience of the downsides of this monopoly network. And in terms of the way the law, I suppose, regarded the railroad companies, I mean, do you see analogies for what we might see in the future with the, the technology companies? Certainly, you know, the railroads are one of the key industries, you know, along with steel and a few others that spawned the progressive movement, like a central part of what American politicians won elections on in the early 20th century was campaigning against monopolies. 
And what we see now is monopoly law, particularly in the United States, changed a lot during the 20th century. And it came to only interpret you know, harm in this very specific way, like if prices went up for consumers. And the problem is a lot of the services we're talking about here are free. <laughs> so, the, you know, their the price is zero. And so it's really become a challenge both to explain to people who feel this kind of inchoate anger or unease around the technology industry, how, how these companies are working, how they make money, how they use consumer data. And at the same time, it's become a political challenge to say, well, what do you do now? These companies are so enmeshed in people's lives and they do have genuine utility. So what? You know, and I think there's a, a missing synthesis that some politician needs to come out with out there that figures out a way to reckon with the changes that have come with digital culture and the rise of these massive companies, but that also recognizes the dangers that their very size pose to, well, democracy, to the way that other non-digital businesses work, to just kind of the fabric of life. And I think you're seeing all kinds of people spinning up ideas. What you haven't seen is someone come up with something like the progressive platform that says, here's what we think, here's how this could work. Instead, it's basically just like, forget Facebook, forget Google, like get away from it. And it turns out these systems are more complicated than that. And simply, you know, putting your phone away or, you know, closing your computer doesn't actually solve the problem. And that was Alexis Madrigal from The Atlantic magazine. We also heard today from Margaret O'Mara at the University of Washington and David Glantz from the University of Western Australia. Thanks to co-producer Karen Savanovitz. You've been listening to Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.